Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast with your host, Andrew Keel. This is the podcast where you can get the education you need to invest 100% passively in the highly profitable niche of mobile home parks. Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast. This is your host, Andrew Keel. And today we have an amazing guest in Mr. Rhett Trees. Rhett is the founder, CEO, and Chief Compliance Officer at Seneca Capital Partners. Seneca Capital Partners specialize in niche, non-correlated assets that are generally in sectors that are not well understood, not overcapitalized, and do not fit neatly into traditional institutional asset classes. As one of the only registered investment advisors in the manufactured home community sector, Seneca is launching their third fund in four years with a keen focus on deploying another $200 million into the MHC market. From 2013 to 2017, Rhett was an equity partner at Caddis Capital Investments, the sponsor of Trico Fund 3, an equity vehicle levered to $75 million that sold most of the fund MHC assets to Blackstone in 2019. Rhett, thank you so much for coming on the show. Andrew, it gives me so much pleasure to be here with you. As you know, um, I consider you to be a dear friend and it's an honor. Um, I think the best thing about our industry is the fact that we're all friends. Uh, I don't know that I've ever been a part of a business sector before that has been so welcoming and uh, and so familial. Uh, we, we often say everybody that's a part of, of Seneca is part of the Seneca family and we mean it. Um, our investors, our service providers, you, um, you know, what people would traditionally call a competitor, you know, it doesn't really, that doesn't resonate with me. You know, we, we are all good people in this industry. I think we've got some, some great folks that are really adding a lot of integrity to the business, which was much needed. And um, we're just honored to be a part of it. Yeah, no, I, I agree. It's, uh, you know, great to, to know someone like you, like you, and, and uh, I'm excited to learn about your, uh, your resume today. Um, maybe you could start out by just telling the listeners a little about your story and, and how you got into manufactured housing. Yeah, I appreciate that. And listening to you, you know, say my bio, it, uh, it sounds much more impressive than it really is. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man, that, is, that is impressive. This has all been cobbled together, man. And it's truly on the shoulders of giants, right? I mean, you hear people say that, but, um, it's funny. I didn't even notice it until just now. If you see that picture right above me, right there, yeah. that's our fourth generation farm in Indiana. Um, my dad grew up there. My my parents still live across the street from that from that photo. That that house is no longer there. It was falling down when I was a kid. Um, farmhouse built in the 1800s. And if you look closely in the yard, which I actually used to have in our first presentation in our first fund. There's a 1977 wilderness trailer underneath a big tree in the side yard of that house. And I've spent a considerable amount of time in that trailer. So I often say to people at our conventions, you know, there's hardly anyone here who's actually ever lived in one of these things. So I've got that great distinction of, you know, knowing what it's like to be um, uh, someone who needs affordable housing. And that's why I'm so passionate about it. People often ask me, you know, how did you get into this crazy business? And it's truly a, a lifelong passion. My, my parents were, uh, are incredible people um, with the biggest hearts I've ever seen. And they were willing and able to help me move to a new school uh, when I was in high school to play basketball at a different school. And we lived in a barn uh, above a landscaping um kind of a warehouse for about two, two and a half years. I lived there for two years. They lived there for well longer. And then they built a house um, on our farm. So um, I know affordable housing. I've been blessed since then. But, um, you know, that's the reason why I'm so passionate about this business and about the services we provide to our residents. That's fantastic. And, you know, I know you spent some time at Caddis Capital. Uh, looks like you spent about four years there. Uh, what did you What did you learn during your time there that you brought over to Seneca Capital Partners? 
Yeah, you know, that's that was kind of the, uh, a big blessing for me, too. I had been in the land business. I was a big land developer before I kind of got into the, to the mobile home park business. I was also in the mobile self-storage business, which I loved. Um, mobile self-storage business was incredibly capital intensive um, and not nearly as passive as I had anticipated when we started. There were six of us. And we sold that to waste management the last day of 2009 for nearly a hundred million. And I got into the land business after that. And I thought, you know, I could help bring more affordable housing to the landscape. And we were literally buying large tracts of land from the national home builders and holding onto them, turning around and reselling those tracts back to the same people we bought them from. And during that time, you know, our investors would say to me, well, you know, I'd love to have a little more, return on investment during the hold period, you know, a traditional IRR. And, you know, you're writing 50 year business plans with your land developments and, and, and it just doesn't resonate with people except for large family offices who have legacy planning and really don't need a, a need the capital or return of, or return on that capital for an extended period of time. It's more of a return on equity play, right? Not an IRR play. And so I started to think to myself, how can we really activate this land? What's what's the best covered land play? And that's when I really fell in love with mobile home park investing and started to say to everyone that would listen, you know, do you know of anyone in this business? Because at that time, you know, this is 2010, there weren't a lot of folks that were really in the business, especially sophisticated people. And I had said to my banker at the time, we were having lunch and, and she said, oh, I've got the perfect guy for you. Um, so I had lunch with Terry, I think maybe three or four days later, um, and Terry LaRue and I became business partners and I'm eternally grateful for him, um, his knowledge, his friendship, um, and, and what we accomplished together was just two of us. And Terry had been in the business since 1986. He's in his 70s. I was in my early 40s at the time. And we really just knocked it out of the park. We had a ton of fun. You know, he's a fourth generation Colorado rancher, so he sees the world in a unique light. And I'm a fourth generation Indiana farm boy. So I'd say that we're both conservative, which I think was helpful. Um, We still built one heck of a portfolio that you'd mentioned we sold uh, to Blackstone, majority of those assets to Blackstone in 2019. And, you know, I learned a lot about what to do, what not to do. what we do at Seneca is way more sophisticated now, I'll tell you that much in regards to how we model, how we look at assets. You know, in 2011, 2012, 2013, you could basically buy any mobile home park asset for an eight cap or 12 cap. And it was really hard to mess up any of those assets. Um, you know, so we, we got really lucky. Um, Freddie Mac came into the business in kind of that 2012, 2013 timeframe. And we were one of their, one of their biggest um, borrowers during that time, um, thanks to Art Tuberson, you know, who was at uh, at GE Capital and, and is now at Arcadia, but um, longtime friend of ours, we did a ton of deals with. That's fantastic. Wow. Some big names uh, that you mentioned there uh, with humble beginnings. So I, I love that. This is, this is a question that I ask everyone that I interview. What are the most important things that passive investors you know, need to look out for when investing into mobile home parks? You know, what are, the, what are the, the top things? Maybe it's three things, maybe it's five things. You know, what what would you tell someone that's completely new, that just heard about it, and now they're, you know, interested in, in diving in? That's a tough one. I can tell you from my experience as someone who owns their own family office, who invests with a lot of others via passive investments, um, and someone who's a sponsor, which I think is a unique perspective on our world. It's a scary, dangerous place. Um, it, it's based on due diligence, on track record, on people running the business at, who is a, a real steward, a real fiduciary. Um, and that's the reason why we started Seneca as a registered investment advisor. Um, you know, I had been raising money in, in the MHC space from third parties for our previous funds at, at, at Caddis. And the thing I heard from everyone was, man, we've been trying to get into this space forever, but there's no 
sophisticated sponsor who's given us the check boxes that we're looking for, right? It was the registered investment advisor. Are you a legal, a true fiduciary for the investor? Do you put their interests ahead of your own? Can you put a reporting package together on a monthly, quarterly, annual basis that is institutional quality that that helps us go to our underlying clients and say, look, what we've done for you, we've put you in this sophisticated vehicle that you know we can easily know is above board and they're doing the right thing. Um, and then, you know, I think one thing that we heard especially was that no one was providing audited financial statements at the time. And that was something that was incredibly important to me. So we went to KPMG and KPMG had never done a fund of our size. Um, wow. You know, it was a very difficult sales job. I mean, you know, I'll, I'll eternally be, um, you know, thankful and grateful to Paul Nako here in Denver at, the, at KPMG because, you know, we convinced them like we had convinced our investors when we started Seneca was with a really simple premise do the right thing with the right people for the right reasons. And then we had this aspiration that we were very vocal about, which was to launch five funds in five years and to sell them simultaneously for a billion dollars in the 2026 to 2028 range. And so we've been going about that very simple goal, which I think if you can outline your goals in, in a very succinct manner for not only your investors, but for your partners and associates that work with you and for those that work with you in alliance with you, like our service partners, you know, it's been a very easy thing to do to say to our service partners, you know, we're doing this for these reasons and, and we want to stay inside that construct. And, um, you know, we've been rewarded for it. I think that's the hallmark for our success. And as a passive investor, I'll be honest with you, I, I know nearly every sponsor in the space and I haven't found one that can match the criteria for my family office, um, and, and it's, I would say it's sad. Um, I, I have aspirations for that to change, and thanks to people like you and um, others in our space, you know, I, I think we're getting there, and, and, and I'd be honored to, to work with all of you because I love this new crop of folks that are coming into our space. It's been a little bit, you know, concerning and and very competitive, but I'm grateful for it because we needed a new breed of syndicators and sponsors to come in and really do what they say they were going to do. And, and folks like you have done that. And I'm, I'm grateful for you doing that because it, it helps all of us. I agree. And, and I appreciate you saying that, you know, I'm, I'm a, a, definitely a small fish compared to, to what you guys are doing at Seneca, but uh, people doing it the right way, you know, and there's, there's other operators, you know, making the, the headlines of, of coming in and, and raising rents, but not improving the assets. And that's just not, that's just not how we choose to do business. So, uh, you know, that's something I look up to you guys, uh, because I've, I've seen some of the, some of the pictures and things on, on social media that, that you guys do in your properties. And it's impressive, you know, and, and that's the same stuff that we do, uh, on a smaller scale. So, uh, very cool. No, I agree. I definitely need to, Make sure that you're, who you're investing with has the same integrity. Uh, that's, that's very important. Uh, Rhett, what has been the, the biggest hurdle for you in this business? Oh, gosh. I mean, I, I, I'm so grateful and, and, and blessed, Andrew. I, I got such a lucky start with, with Terry and Caddis and the ability to kind of jump off from that point. You know, we had a track record. Um, with the sale of Trico Fund 3, that, that really helped. And then we've had some recent um, supplemental refis that have been super helpful for our investors in regards to returning capital to them, showing and proving that our business model from day one was spot on. Um, you know, we, we look at every asset in a really unique light. We, we look at every asset and it has to have the ability to have a supplemental loan a cash out refinance uh, attached to it. In addition, we've done every loan in Seneca's history with Freddie Mac. Um, wow. They're a dear partner of ours. And um, they, we just wouldn't be who we are today without, without them. Um, so thankfully the, the construct of their financing package is such that 
you know, everything we've done with them is a really low interest rate. Um, it's got a 10 year term, a 30 year amortization. And we have three supplementals with all of our loan with an assumption clause. And those two wow. constructs about the supplemental and the assumption are fundamental to our disposition strategy, which is to sell or have a, a sovereign private equity firm or a US-based private equity firm um, assume all of our loans and take over all of our assets in a single tranche, you know, four or five funds um, in a single tranche. So wow. we think both of those things are incredibly fundamental to what we do and why we do it. There's an underlying um, factor there too, which I think goes to your previous question, which is we don't do CMBS debt. We don't do bank debt. Um, I've, I've lived in that space before and CMBS, I think you just get out over your tips a little bit when you start to look at CMBS deals because it becomes a little more broad. You know, there's something uh, that gives you a, a tremendous peace of mind when you know that a government sponsored entity is doing their underwriting in lockstep with you um, to have your seller servicer in the middle. Um, and, and to know that, yeah, we, we've got this right. We, you know, we, we did what we thought should be done right. And this, the debt agrees with us and we've underwritten this correctly. They've, they've come back with a similar underwriting and that just gives me a ton of peace of mind. Cause I've, I've got majority of my net worth invested in Seneca and our funds too. So um, there's all these checks and balances and, and to your question about, you know, the hurdles or what, what, what's been the toughest part. Um, you know, I think scale is just something that we all struggle with in this business. I mean, you, you, if you get down to the real heart of the matter, you've really got to ask yourself, why does the tenant have to pay for this low cap rate environment? And I struggle with that. I'll be honest with you. I mean, I'm, I'm a really spiritual cat and uh, we run our business in a really spiritual manner. And that's been the hardest part about this recent situation in, in affordable housing and just housing in general in America is, you know, the tenant really does take a lot of this brunt because if you buy something at such a low cap rate, the only way to get yourself out of it is by raising rents or cutting costs. I mean, it's a really simple business. It's probably the, the most simple business I've ever been a part of. It's, it's an NOI based business where there's really two levers you can pull. And you've got to kind of do them simultaneously or, or else the model just doesn't work. So, um, you know, that's the struggle, I think. If you can find a, a seller that's willing to sell for a win-win price, which we struggle with, but um, we've, we closed three deals in December alone. Um, and I think if you went back and asked all those sellers, if we were fair, if we were kind, um, if we did the right thing, I, I know each of them would say yes, because we've talked to them after the sale. Um, and, and to be honest with you, they're our friends now. I mean, I, I, I really get engaged in the friendship of the business. That's what is, it's really about for me. It's not about the money. I could care less about the money. Um, it's truly about, you know, this is our existence. I often tell people, it's, this isn't my job. It's not my career. This is my life. I've got everything, you know, tied up into Seneca and, um, you know, it's, it's just how we present ourselves to the world more than anything. Definitely. Yeah. And back to the, you know, the hurdle part with the, with the tenants and how they kind of bear the brunt of this, you know, I, I think that mobile home parks, you know, have been deferred, uh, you know, a long time. Uh, you know, it's, it's probably been with, with a lot of these mom and pops, you know, uh, 10, 20 years before they've kind of, done some of the deferred maintenance that's been necessary. So I think it is a double-edged sword, like you're saying, you know, the, the deferred maintenance and some of the capital improvements that are being made are, are being made, but, you know, as a, as a function of that, you know, lot rents, you know, which have been, it's been studied that they are, are low across the country. Uh, they're, they're starting to go up, you know, I'm sure now that COVID has happened, you know, some of those have been paused you know, maybe you could touch on that briefly, you know, uh, just how COVID has affected your guys' portfolio. Yeah, you know, I, I have, as you and I have talked about, I, um, I took a really broad view of COVID originally uh, in the beginning. And I knew in my heart of hearts that 
um, having been through recessionary periods with this asset class before, that it was going to be resilient. It just always is. I mean, it's the last um, receptor for you know affordable housing in the country. It's it's the last bastion for anyone who needs affordable housing. And and I knew that people would flock to this asset class, and they did. Um, you know, I give all the grace to Larry Nelson, our head of asset management. He was doing. Uh, a stress test on our entire portfolio almost on a daily basis in the early April through middle of May range, where we were looking at um, our collections on a daily basis to ensure that, you know, we weren't getting out over our skis, that, that we were collecting all the rents, that our um, planned, what we called, um, you know, voluntary capital expenditures were still um, needed and we're still on track and that we held back some non-discretionary or some discretionary, you know, capital expenditures to see where we were headed and what was going to happen. It was a very, you know, just, um, noisy time in that early March through April timeframe. And once we got to May one rents and we were 97% collected, I said to myself, you know, this is one of those rare opportunities, a once in a lifetime opportunity for us to strike in a market that's been overheated, that we know is going to thrive no matter what happens here. Um, even the pandemic pandemic ran for 12, 24 months that we were still going to be fine. We had, we were flush with capital. We had Sire Fund 2 that had just closed. It was about a $90 million total AUM fund. So we had all that money at our disposal. And so I jumped in an RV and I, I went, was gone. I think we went to 18 states. Um, I looked at 33 deals. I, I sent an email to every broker and third party I knew in the country. And I said, send me any deal, no matter where it is in your pipeline. And I'll see it in person in the next three weeks. And we did. We, we, we looked at 33 deals and um, we looked at competitive deals. Um, we, we, we dove deep into every market. and. Um, I was in a 32 foot RV doing, um, competitive mobile home park tours, which with my two kids who were 11 and eight and my wife who basically had no idea what I did other than, you know, hearing me talk on the phone and for them to witness, um, you know, that lifestyle and what daddy does for, for a living, um, personally, I think was maybe one of the biggest gifts I've ever given my family. Uh, my kids came back with a whole new appreciation for um, not only our life, but just being empathetic for those who need um, help from, from us and others. And the fact that what Seneca provides is clean, safe, affordable housing for our tenants. And to our previous conversation, um, one thing that we're really proud of is if we do raise rents, we provide some type of amenity or benefit to the tenant immediately, if not prior to that rent increase, right? So if you look at our, our community in, in Dallas, we since we bought it, to your point also, it had incredible amounts of deferred maintenance. The, the owner lived nearly three hours away. She hadn't been there in eight years. Um, they hadn't done anything to the park. We came in and put it in a bas- brand new basketball court, um, a soccer field, huge gazebo, um, a Texas style barbecue pit that was, you know, at 30 feet wide, redid the community center. We've had, um, families in that community center that have booked it every day of every weekend since we've remodeled it. Wow. And it gives me so much joy to know that all those people now have this community, right? Yeah. That's what we're in it for is this community. But we forget about that part of what we do that we're providing literal community this structure for people to have these safe places where they can go barbecue with their friends or their family and really uh, be a part of a community. And that's something that we're really proud of. That that's huge, man. No, I, I, I'll never forget. It was a gentleman that works with me. His mom is an artist. And in one of our parks, she said there was like a big, huge blank wall, right? When people come into the community. And she said, hey, if you fly me up there to see my son, I'll paint uh, a mural on that, on that wall. And so I, I was like, of course. So she, she came up and she painted a beautiful scenic like, like mountain range with deer. And, and it was absolutely beautiful. And I'll never forget 
the tenants coming up after that. Cause I, I lived in the, in a house in the front of the park during, during this whole process. <laughs> there, yeah. yeah. And I, I, I just, I'll never forget the tenants coming up and just saying, thank you so much. I've been driving home from work for 15 years and just hating, you know, driving through this, this community just because it just looked the way it did. And now every time I see that mural and it says, welcome home up top. And it just, it just melted my heart. You know, it just something so small like that can have such a huge impact. So love what you guys are doing, you know, to increase the value of these communities that have just been, you know, it's just, I don't blame mom and pops. You know, I think they just, they needed the income. So they just weren't reinvesting into the assets. So, um, yeah. And I mean, the, the difficult part is, is that they lived off that, off that income forever, right? The mom and pop. And, and if anything, they didn't reinvest in the community. And I think if you put yourselves in, in, in the, the space of the homeowner and a new like behemoth organization buys your mobile home community, what's your biggest fear? The fear, your, your fear of losing your home yeah. or, or losing the space that you, uh, where your home resides. And, and, the first thing we want to do is put all that to rest. A, A, we're all we do is own mobile home parks. B, the last thing we want to do is for you to leave. We we want to do everything we can do to keep you to stay. Yeah. Like that's our job. We we bought you know a park knowing that we wanted you to be there. We don't. The last thing we want you to do is to leave. And I think in the tenants' minds, when you can come in and immediately make some kind of dramatic change, right? So we'll repave the roads immediately or we'll add all these huge amenities. And more importantly, what we've been doing with Freddie Mac, which I think has been incredibly powerful for the tenant, is we've been putting in a significant amount of escrows into our loan. I'm talking 300,000, 600,000, a million dollars for our most recent deal in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, where we committed a million dollars in escrow to capital improvements which is a huge amount of money. Yeah. And so I think if you're the tenant and you know, Hey, my, yeah, my rent's probably under market. And, and I think they do know that, um, you know, they've done the competitive calls. They've called over to wherever and said, you know, will you guys give me a credit to move over here? And they say, yeah, we would, but we're full and B our amenity package is less than where you are now and C our rents are higher than where you are now. I think the tenant knows like, gosh, I'm probably getting a pretty good deal here. And if the tenant has their home paid off, I'll argue until, you know, the end of time that mobile home parks are the best value on the planet in regards to housing. Um, we typically look at three competitive sets when we buy something. It's, it's a three bedroom, single family rental. It's a three bedroom or two bedroom class C apartment. Or, um, you know, it's what, what the land value and the home value would be on a, on a private piece of land. And so we look at all those and we say, let's try and be um, 20 to 40% of whatever that number is. And if you can do that, you're going to win all day long. Yeah. You know, I mean, you're usually at the 40% number, right? So, um, but if you can be in that range in regards to your lot rent compared to those other asset opportunities for the tenant, um, you know, it's a great value for both parties. Huge value. Yeah, no, I agree. Rhett, I, uh, this is another question I ask everybody, you know, what, what does the perfect mobile home park look like in your eyes? Oh gosh, (laughs) I think that's probably the toughest question on the planet. Um, the thing that immediately comes to mind for me is potential. Um, you know, I call every, we, we've looked at, um, I think maybe $3 billion worth of mobile home parks in the last three years, probably I'd have to look at the number, but it's probably 150 parks, maybe more, um, 200 maybe. And, and I look at each of them, um, as a potential child, I call them my children cause they're all different, right? They all have their unique <laughs> personality. They're on city water, city sewer. They've got this lagoon system that you can get half a mile away, you can get the city water, city sewer, and we take the risk on doing that. At the end of the day, you know, if you ask my kids what I do for a living, they'll tell you that I'm a highly paid creative problem solver. (laughs) And if you can really frame everything you look at in the mobile home park business in that view, or with that construct in mind, then you'll notice that the entire world opens up to you because there's never been a perfect mobile home park. 
Um, our job, when I tell our investors, you know, what we do for a living is we take assets that have been um, trammeled or, um, you know, that are um, disenfranchised, that have had previous ownership that truly did squeeze every drop from not only the fruit, not only did they cut off the limbs of the tree, they cut down the entire tree, right? Yeah. So it's our job to really just go back and show that tree what its potential is. And we invest in it and we make it better. And if we can make, you know, some money for our investors, when I make, when I wake up every morning, I have a really simple um, kind of meditation with myself. What's my job today? My job is bifurcated. It's to give money back a return of and a return on to my investors because they've given us their hard-earned money. And for every dollar they give us, my job and my goal is to give them two bucks back. And our tenant. So I wake up and I think about, man, when I was living in that barn, what would I have wanted? I would want a landlord that would have been you know, heartfelt and but would have provided me the services to have a clean, safe community. Because I think our tenants have the exact same aspiration that you and I do. It's to provide a clean, safe place for our kiddos to grow up and for them to be better than us when they're, when they're of age. Right. So that's what we do. We we provide that clean, safe community in hopes that, you know, everyone that lives there can find their way and their journey um, to become their best self. So, um, you know, that's really, we try to make it a pretty simple process when, when, when we do what we do and for the reasons why we do it. That's, that's fantastic. And I mean, you've kind of touched on this throughout, but one of the, the last questions is what is the value proposition at Seneca Capital Partners? And, you know, what, what would you say makes your funds different? I, I know you have mentioned a few things, but maybe you could, you could summarize it and tie it together here at the end. You know, as an investor, I mean, I think about that a lot too, like what separates us from all the people that are out there, because there's a lot of, there's a lot of sponsors. Our, our, our space and our sector is probably the noisiest sector. And this happens every time there's a recessionary environment and there's a, a, a chase for yield, right? So the multifamily guys come to town, the industrial guys start to sniff around. Um, and it's the, the folks like us that traditionally end up buying whatever assets those people bought three or four years later, because they had no idea what they were doing, which is fine. Um, you know, we're happy for them to overpay and for us to get a discount in the future. Patience is, you know, is rewarded and we're in this for the long term. I mean, I'm not going anywhere. I plan to do this for the rest of my life. So, um, you know, it, it, what differentiates us, I think truly, if you asked anyone who's been a part of our journey, they'd tell you that our hallmark is creativity. I mean, I could give you example after example where people have walked away from deals or signed us deals, or um, we've got deals off market because people just weren't able to think creatively about how can I find a win-win solution for the seller and for us and our investors. And then in the future, find the highest and best use for this asset, regardless of what it is or how, how it looks today. Right. So, um, you know, we did a park in Florida where we escrowed $600,000, replaced 166 six-pad cement parking pads, and we've already completed it. It took us about six months to do that. We're putting in a, a, a water pad, a splash pad for the tenants right now, and we've taken that from what the seller told us was the last bastion for affordable housing in, in the county of Florida where we are. Wow. And we changed the thought for not only our management there, but for our tenants that no, we are the cleanest, safest, coolest place to live in the mobile home park community in the area. And not only that, we're going to invest in it and show you why. And so we took what I call a sub-institutional asset. It's 170 pads um, and um, turned it into an institutional asset. And so, you know, the way that we do that, I think, and you and I have talked about this in the past too, one big differentiator for us is the fact that we've just got 150 like new road ready mobile homes sitting in two storage yards across the country. And when I started doing that, that was a huge, huge risk that we took. And I honestly was kind of like, yeah, I think this is the right thing to do, but to have millions of dollars sitting in a storage yard that's burning 
at an 8% preferred return, fallow capital, and a depreciating asset, anybody in the structured finance world would go, yeah, man, I don't know. What, what are you guys doing again? But when you can step back and look at how this business even works, which is what I call this, this lot activation strategy, right? So if you can get an NOI on that home and that lot with an asset that you bought for 20 cents on the dollar, you sell it for its retail price. So even if you make money on the home or the chattel, it's a win. I'd sell it at cost if I had to. I'm in it for the lot rent because then I get to capitalize to put the cap rate on that lot rent. And I just activated that lot. And now I get credit at a compounded rate um, for all that income. And so that's really the reason why we did it. And, and it's now started to catch on with people that that was genius. And I'm like, well, it didn't feel so at the time. It still doesn't feel that way right now. And maybe you could, maybe you can explain, you know, a little bit deeper into to that risk that you took, because, you know, when you told me that I was just, uh, I was at a loss for words that you, you took that risk, but now, you know, it, it speaks to your creativity that you were talking about earlier. Well, at the time, right, the manufacturers of mobile home part of mobile home um, chattel uh, of homes, they were rapidly declining, right? And so what was the most difficult part of our business was it was impossible to find a used home. If you did find one for sale, it probably wouldn't move. Um, They're like anything else, like your house and my house, they settle and they get comfortable (laughs) where they are and they don't want to go anywhere. I mean, you got to remember there's two steel beams that run underneath these things with a hitch tied uh, welded to that process, that foundational process. And once I call them single purpose vehicles, their purpose is to get where they're going and they're never meant to go anywhere again. The mobile aspect of what we do is really um, a a misnomer. Um, And so I thought, well, what if we could get these like new homes and we bought them from the federal government in bulk, um, tens, twenties, hundreds at a time. And if we could, what if, what if we just had them and what if we could go buy mobile home parks that were 50% occupied in thriving 24 hour cities that had, you know, we look at really three things when we, when we buy a mobile home park population growth, income growth, and the dislocation and the ELI index, right? It's an index provided by HUD. It's a map, a literal map of every county in the country. And it will tell you how many units are available, how many people need affordable housing, and how many units are available for that contingent. And so what happens is that cohort's going, man, I would pay anybody nearly anything to have a home right now. I don't want to live with my mom and dad anymore. I'm living with my brother. Who knows what they're doing? And what gives me so much joy about what we've done, and I told people this from the beginning, I don't think they really understood, was I'm so excited to add supply to this business because yeah. it's a, it's a demand-driven, supply-constrained market, right? So there's just not enough of it. And nobody's willing to take a risk and say, you know what, I'm going to add supply to this thing instead of building a class A apartment complex that's going to rent for 2,300 bucks a month to a 26 year old who has a $72,000 salary in, in a market that's overbuilt by 9,000 units. I'm going to go to the other end of the spectrum, right? So I'm going to add supply to the, to the most affordable aspect of housing. And it resonated so deeply within me that I just knew it couldn't be wrong. And so, um, you know, we've sold through, about 80% of those homes now, and we're trying to buy more of them. But, you know, I think the secret's out. I've been talking about this for, for seven or eight years now. So some people have caught on, which is great because at the end of the day, um, we need a bunch of us, me and you and everybody else to add the supply. Yeah. And so I don't care who adds the supply. Let's just add it. So these people can have a place to live so we can solve for homelessness and we can solve for some of these societal issues that literally do keep me up at night. And that's the reason why we started our family foundation to kind of solve for some of these things that, you know, really do, um, you know, keep us up. And, and so, you know, that's, that's the main reason why we do what we do and what kind of differentiates us is, is just this home of our ability to add new supply in homes. 
And that, you know, I was, as you were mentioning that, I thought through about a handful of other interviews that we have on the show, uh, talking about the value add components in manufactured housing communities and how infill is, you know, the hardest aspect, you know, it's, it's easy to come in and to raise rents, right? But to, to infill requires more labor, more work, more risk, more capital. So kudos to you guys for not being scared of that and for taking the initiative to, to put those homes to work. You know, you guys, uh, you guys really worked hard to make that happen and you took a risk. So that's awesome that it's paying off for you. Yeah, I appreciate that, my friend. I know you've been doing the same and I'm grateful for it because, you know, your, your work is harder than ours. You know, you're, you're down in the trenches. I mean, you know, the one thing that I'm, I'm really grateful for, and I have to say it is, is Mark Kassab and his team over at Shapiro. Um, without Shapiro, we wouldn't be who we are today. Um, you know, I, I'm just not built for the day-to-day management of what we do. Um, and gosh, man, I tell you, the folks at M. Shapiro have really changed our lives for the better. Um, I think the industry for the better. Um, they know what they're doing. They've, they've got their own portfolio of mobile home communities and then they're doing it for others, which I think was the reason why we couldn't get this institutional view of, of the industry. You know, it's like self-storage. I always, always say to anyone that'll listen that mobile home park investing is self-storage in 1988. There were a bunch of these mom and pop developers across the country who took a ton of risk to buy a piece of land, develop it into whatever they wanted it to be, to try and get a brand going that was all almost always Orlando self-storage or, you know, local yokel self-storage. And, you know, to have the institutional backing of public storage and others, you know, was huge for the valuation, the compression of the cap rate in that business. And I think we're seeing that now. Um, and I think folks like M. Shapiro will help bring some um, institutional views to what we're doing and why we're doing it. I think it's already here. Um, but you know, that's really what we do on a daily basis is we're doing the heavy lift for the institutional owner. Cause they're lazy. Let's be honest. I mean, it's going to be a, whoever we sell our portfolio to is going to be a 28 year old kid on broad street in New York city in Manhattan, m- managing it from a spreadsheet. You're more than likely right on that. And maybe you can share a little bit about Shapiro. I know they're like a third-party management company. Um, You know, I've spoken with Shapiro. Uh, I think it works better for your model for them to manage your parks, you know, with 150 lots or higher. And, uh, you know, maybe you could talk on some of the, you know, the strengths and weaknesses of their operation. Yeah, I'd love to. To be honest with you, um, we had a really unique start to our relationship. We, I remember sitting down with them at the NCC in Chicago. We had just started with them. Um, and they really didn't, they didn't really do what we thought they were going to do in regards to this handoff process for our first asset. And I remember that lunch. I'll never forget it. I mean, we were sitting at a pizza place in Chicago and, and I was pretty rough on them. And I'm usually like super chill. Like I, it's pretty tough to get me fired up. And, you know, I said, you know what, guys, like, this is not the partnership that we had in mind. And Marcus Saab looked me in the eye at that launch and said, you know what, we're, we're not proud of, the, of this, the way that it came off either. And we learned from it and Seneca learned from it. And we were like, sweet, well, let's go do this. And ever since that day, there's not, they've never said no. We brought them, we bought a five park portfolio um, in Wisconsin and the biggest one was in the high 300s pad. And the smallest one, I think, was 17 pads. Oh, wow. And they took it all. And they said, you know what? Doesn't matter. We'll figure it out. And so, you know, there aren't very many other folks in our business that would have said, yeah, we'll take on a 17 pad mobile home park. And then yeah. the first year location, yeah. you know, that's 40 miles from the nearest anything. Wow. And so, you know, that's why I'm so proud of them. I mean, they've built a professional organization that thinks of themselves as best in breed and world-class and they are. And so you're right. Um, people, you know, I, I'd love to be a mentor to folks that are just getting started in this business. And I take any phone call from anyone. And I've talked to so many people recently 
mainly mainly young folks who are in their late 20s, early 30s that want to really get started and do it more from the you know the bootstrapping side of the business. Um, and and I think that's the toughest part is you know you, you've got about this 500 pad you know demarcation line right where you've got to bootstrap it to 500 and then you may have enough income but if you don't have any outside investors I'd argue and I know that Ian and uh, Ryan would probably argue and that you would argue that you're likely better off to just own the whole thing and not have these outside investors or these enormous aspirations because there's this no man's land and we were in it about a year ago where you know you're big enough to be big and you're small too small to be big and uh it's so frustrating because you're like man these costs are eating us alive um and the man got a lot of costs they kind of all investment advisors so we've got this overlay on the corporate side and we've got a fund administrator and we've got kpmg as our auditor so we have all of these like like third party services that weigh on us. There are an albatross around our neck that, that folks that do more of the bootstrapping route really don't have that cost center that they have to worry about. So I think that's the fascinating part about the business because the barriers to entry are so low. I mean, anybody can be an owner in our business. I love it. Um, But that's the conundrum is I often say it's a scale business um, because the, the cost line stays static, right? And I know you felt this pain. We've talked about it. And if you can get, if you have a 300 pad park and the cost line stays here, man, there's a lot of money in the middle. But yeah. if you've got a 58 pad park, which, you know, we've got one in Texas that's just been, um, you know, our crazy child. Um, you do you know. want to sell it? I do actually. <laughs> I'd gladly sell to you because you'd figure out what to do with it. Lord knows. That sounds like a base hit for us. But yeah, we'll talk about that after. But exactly. Uh, yeah. You know, no, you're exactly right. The scale is the tough part, and you know, building that management team is uh, is difficult. So that's that's really good though that that you've had a great experience with Shapiro, and you know, uh, there's been other people that we've spoken with that have had you know horror stories with third-party managers so uh those two um, yeah. and, and you know when i was at caddis we really tried uh, that i'm grateful and thankful for that time because we we tried both um as a pilot on purpose right so we had an in, in-house management team that was really small trying to manage a couple of properties we had a third-party manager and in my experience it's if you do it in-house it's twice as costly and we were half as efficient. Um, but to your, to our point, like you've got to have the scale for all that to work. So at Seneca, we've done what we call hybrid, um, where we've got Larry Nelson, our head of asset management. Larry's just an incredible resource. The guy's a wealth of knowledge. Um, and he's kind of the oversight for Shapiro. And then, you know, all of our on-site property managers um, in, in the regional manager. So we provide the strategy and, um, you know, the go-to-market thinking around what we'd like to accomplish there. And then we work in lockstep with them. Larry has a huge call with them every Monday where they go through every single asset and it's, it's detailed. And we use a third-party um, solution app that I think has been kind of mind-blowing and game-changing for all of us to have these insights and in, in keeping people accountable to, you know, what they were supposed to do after the last call. And it, it to, you know, you're better th- than anyone at this is, is the process of what you do um, and utilizing as many tools as possible to make that the most efficient time for everyone in the entire chain. And I know that's how you've grown your business. And I'm, I, I've just loved watching you, grow and and be um a real um shining light for the industry with this podcast and with the way you do business and being a friend to everyone um so thanks for that and, and hey, thanks for having me. i i really appreciate that red that that means a lot man coming from you and you know uh, you're you're an idol to me in this business so I, i'm really thankful and grateful that you chose to come on the podcast um if, if any of our listeners would like to get a hold of you or, 
might be interested in investing with Seneca Capital Partners, how would you uh, like them to get a hold of you guys? Oh man, that's too kind. Yeah, uh, yeah. My cell phone's out there, and I'd, I'll give it to everyone right here. And I encourage anyone to reach out to me. I mean, I've, I've had um, folks that have never even known much about the business. I'll spend as much time with them as they want. I think just if we can ed- educate anyone about the business and the positives about what we're doing here. Um, I'm happy to spend time with anyone. And if I can be a value, um, they can call me on my cell. It's the only number I have, 303-888-2826. They can reach me on email at rtrees, T-R-E-E-S, at Seneca, S-E-N-E-C-A-C-P. Dot com. And um, you know, we have aspirations to launch fund three here. We're going to do it this month. We were going to have a cover number somewhere in the $50 million range. I think we're probably going to double that to the $100 million range of equity for $200 million um, in AUM. Ideally, is where we're going to hopefully end up. So um, we've had some incredible investors with us along the way. And um, got a great advisory board. I encourage you to check out our advisory board on our, our website. Um, some of the brightest people, the brightest people I've ever worked with. I'm incredibly grateful for them and their guidance. Um, and, uh, and if anybody wants to learn more, I'd be happy to tell them about the industry and, and why we think, um, you know, we're so long on, on everything that's happening. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Rhett. Uh, I think there was several golden nuggets in this episode for our listeners. So uh, that's it for today, everybody. Thank you all so much for tuning in. It's a pleasure. See you, my friend. Hey, are you getting value out of this show? If so, would you mind please going over to iTunes and leaving the show a quick five-star review? I have a goal of hitting over 100 five-star reviews by the end of 2021. And it would mean the absolute world to me if you could help contribute to that. Thanks ahead of time for making my day with your five-star review of the show.